I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Alexandria Maloney. Alexandria is an international affairs officer at U.S. CENTCOM with the U.S. Department of Defense and is the president of Black Professionals in International Affairs. Alexandria, thanks for joining us. Grant, Zoe, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Just as a note before this conversation, these views are my own and do not represent the U.S. government. Perfect. So how did you decide to get into foreign policy? My journey into the foreign policy field was truly one of chance, of fate, (laughs) if you will. I grew up in Charles County, Southern Maryland, a kind of suburban, rural area. I went to public school, K through 12. And I had a high school French teacher, Miss Rosa Shamdani, my senior year of high school, who was determined <laughs> to expose us to the wonders and the opportunities of the world. That initial seed really inspired me to pursue my degree, my BA overseas in Rome, Italy, at my now alma mater, John Cabot University. And through that experience, I got my first ever exposure to what international life and foreign affairs careers even looked like. My grandparents were military veterans. You know, they would tell me stories of their travels overseas, but no one in my family ever did anything like this before. Okay. To be very honest, (laughs) my journey overall, like my academic journey, very exploratory, rooted really in curiosity in terms of these career paths in the sense that I was learning both in the classes and from my international kind of student peer community about current events and world affairs and political theories and so on. So in terms of how I actually made the decision to enter the foreign policy apparatus, I can't remember the exact moment. However, one thing that does stick out to me in my mind is that while continuing on this path, as I navigated through the field from college onward, I saw and I encountered very few people who actually looked like me. So I'm fortunate that I could look to a Susan Rice or Condoleezza Rice or an LTG and say, that's who I want to be when I grow up. But that very sparse visibility and presence of people of color in the field is what led to a lot of the work that I've done in the DEIA side of the house in the foreign policy field. So you're coming off really a banner year. You got the Rookie of the Year title from the Truman National Security Project. You were put on the Forbes for the Culture list, the CSIS and DINSN 2021 U.S. National Security and Foreign Affairs Leadership list. I could keep going. To what do you attribute this success? Wow, you're so kind, Grant. I believe that the little things add up to the big things. The recognitions that you have mentioned come from years, years of doing this work. I always say I was doing DEIA in this space before it was sexy. Okay. And it's been rooted in a need that I haven't seen get prioritized in our field. So instead of complaining about it, 
I decided I'm going to do something about it with the resources and the networks that I've built so far in my life, as well as, you know, seeking the networks that can and want to help as well. So firstly, and these are things that I kind of attribute to my ability and being successful in these, in these objectives that I personally defined. One, adequately building my knowledge and expertise, pursuing and obtaining the tools and the skill sets needed to be able to tackle these extremely complex problem sets in our field, both DE&I and national security wise. You're not going to get that by reading one or two books from a library or trying to teach yourself per se. The level of change and impact that I'm looking to do, the level of effort applied to the foreign policy ecosystem, I needed to be trained by the world's leading systems thinkers. I needed to be trained by the ones who developed the theory that then is applied in practice to most adequately be able to apply different methods to these super complex challenges in our field. Two, I'll say I needed to understand the landscape simply put, the stakeholders, the political climate, to be able to support the best courses of action to successfully complete these objectives of diversifying our field. And three, building ecosystems. We live and work in a very relationship-oriented world, creating strong tie relationships, networks of friends who also believe in the importance of this work and are willing to step up and do something about it. So to answer your question about what attributed to the quote unquote success, it was nothing but years of hard work, years of often unpaid efforts, largely behind the scenes work, being told no, or that something might not work, or that something's being too ambitious, or that I'm too novice to be doing this thing that I say I'm going to do. And then I consciously strategize how I'm going to do it anyway. Because for me, this mission and this work is simply too critical, both to my community and to our nation at large. First and foremost, bravo for having the perseverance and the thoughtfulness to be so strategic about how to advance this agenda that only recently, it feels like the broader community has realized should be such a high priority. You've talked about the concept of decolonizing foreign policy in the past. I'm curious, what exactly does that mean? I was invited to a fantastic Truman discussion on this last year that was led by the current Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for African Affairs, Chidi Blyden. And when I think of the textbook definition of decolonizing foreign policy, to me, it starts with acknowledging and addressing systems that perpetuate cycles of dependency through financial and ideological means, particularly with foreign nations, i.e. supporting nations in ways that allows them to build a sustained foundation on matters important to them and to their nation. But it also means taking a look in the mirror at ourselves because it's important that our values align with our actions, right? That we practice what we preach. And that means not only asking ourselves the hard questions, but committing to put the backing and the resources in developing these solutions. 
do our institutions and senior leadership across the foreign policy and national security field fully encompass and represent the vastness of the American people? Or are our institutions still dominated primarily by white and predominantly male you know, individuals? or by those who may have a background of some leverage of advantage, access to education, opportunities, you know, just getting in the room, right? Last July, Foreign Policy, they published an excellent article entitled How Diasporas Can Help Decolonize the State Department that kind of speaks to these topics. Now, a more important question, (laughs) are these issues important enough for our leaders to make this a priority. And let me be clear, by priority, I mean getting the adequate allocation of tools, skills, experts to be able to solve a complex problem as intense as decolonizing oneself, like ourselves. (laughs) But keeping the end state in mind, the vision of a fully equitable and inclusive foreign policy field, what would that look like? Do we have access to the tools needed, financial, human capital, social capital, to make that happen? Absolutely. And according to Forbes, we live in the wealthiest nation in the world, one of the most educated. We have the resources, but until it becomes a priority, until it becomes a mission objective in writing, backed by adequate funding and organizational design specialists for our agencies, for our academic institutions, our think tanks, the private sector, all the pieces that make up and touch what we consider to be the foreign policy apparatus to adequately prioritize and adequately invest in these efforts, we will continue to see the same perpetual cycles supporting an exclusionary and monolithic American foreign policy field. When it comes to intersections of racial justice and foreign policy, there's a lot of different angles, but there's at least two sort of distinct but somewhat interrelated ones. And I'm curious how you think about those two different areas and, and, and how they intersect. One of them is the diversity of the people in the field itself and the demographics of the foreign policy officials and various folks who, who work on foreign policy from different vantage points. And then the other is the content of foreign policy and political theory and international relations theory and the extent to which that theory is acknowledging the racialized logic of certain concepts like sovereignty or great power competition or realpolitik and things like that. Do we need to be addressing both? And And I'm curious what you think a more inclusive IR theory would look like. Just like I, as Alexandria Maloney, or you as Zoe, or you as Grant, or the person listening to this podcast, may have and develop our own theories around how the world works and why it works the way that it works, theorists have the same right to develop political theories and concepts. However, an Alexandria theory is going to be shaped by Alexandria's experiences, observations, and education which may be very different from that of Grant or Zoe's or the person who's listening to this experiences, observations, and education. 
the disconnect in me for this paradigm as a society and intellectual institutions is what we have considered and what we continue to consider as established and new thought leadership in IR theory. To me, a more inclusive IR theory looks like diverse academics and theorists publishing on a variety of platforms being included in conferences and textbooks on these things, the panels and discussions that are leading these conversations of intellectual institutions. What are the organizations, what do these boards look like? Like, or the IR theorists who are making decisions relating to the field, providing recommendations to the world leaders. Do they include diverse theorists and perspectives? Unfortunately, from the historical perspective, they haven't always been that way. What does the leadership of the establishment look like? What do they sound like? What do they think like? We need more academics, more IR thought leaders of color, of different gender, thought, religion, lifestyle, et cetera, which may mean some additional outreach from these leading IR institutions to reach into communities sometimes, directly engaging with them in conversation and pipelines, appointing diverse members of their board to their leadership helping to socialize and mentor the next generation of IR leaders. That should be, in my opinion, a duty of many of these, of our intellectual institutions who have in the past, whether consciously or unconsciously, sometimes historically excluded populations from simply accessing the space. So until the IR community starts shaping conversations and thought around the international system that accounts for different ethnic backgrounds, cultural, different cultural context head on, adequately addressing cultural differences and unconscious bias outside of our U.S.-centered lens, we will continue to see racialized concepts, in my opinion, of great power competition, real politics. We could have the next great IR theorist of our time sitting in a college in Brooklyn or in Birmingham with experiences and with a unique worldview that could shape the international system as we know it. And because of the, I'm going to say it, exclusivity of the IR apparatus and community, the world may never know that theory, right? Like for that young person, they're probably like, it's more likely that I'll become TikTok famous. Like, <laughs> and what, what's a shame is the primary entities who are ultimately affected by this are our intellectual institutions who, if there is not this intentional outreach to the communities, we will continue to perpetuate cycles of inaccessibility and historical exclusion, even if it's not outright or intentional. If the focus remains on elite, Ivy League, DC-based students with immense international experience, you know, and I'm focusing on that part because it's the beginning of this cycle then things will continue to be the same. Now, I don't want to be a cynic. I need to give a shout out because I do see, you know, IR intellectual institutions in the academia, as well as in our think tank space, doing the work, right? CSIS, CFR, consistent, very active in engaging diverse communities, which is a piece of the pie. I will continue to challenge our institutions to reflect on the other pieces of the pie that I mentioned earlier. 
Based on that comment, how much of the problem do you think is the over-securitization of foreign policy that makes many of these choices seem or feel zero-sum? It feels like every foreign policy interaction we have has to give the U.S. some type of advantage. So that leads us to maybe much more American-first foreign policy ideology and makes us less interested in promoting the development of other countries for their own sake. What's challenging and what we're finding, what I've observed, let me speak from my perspective, from my lens, these things are fluctuating, right? From administration to administration, you have different priorities, different approaches. So in one moment, it could be very clear messaging and policy that points to we're taking an America first approach. And then a year later, things can do a 360 flip and say that, you know, there's now we're going to re-engage. We're going to be more collaborative. We're going to be more integrated into the international system. So the challenge I find, I think that America has had has been almost, it's like a balancing act, like a juggling act. I don't want to say balancing because it's, it's more of like a juggling act because we have collectives of our society who honestly and truly believe that one of those ways is the way. That's, that's a tough question. I don't think I have an answer to that, Grant. I'm sorry. I wish I could give you something better. <laughs> it's a really good question. <laughs> I think that's a real challenge when you're trying to decolonize or at least decentralize American ideology or America's benefit in foreign policy. What do you think is more important, that we decolonize the way we do foreign policy or that we decolonize the workforce in foreign policy? If we have the same voices encompassing the same schools of thought, attending the same institutions, I'm talking generationally now, I don't see how a foreign policy model can kind of broaden under that paradigm. So when we're talking about diverse workforces versus broadening foreign policy, like in this theoretical sense, I do think that, of course, naturally, you know, a more diverse workforce could help broaden foreign policy theoretically, because the more the diverse community, more the diverse communities are included and exposed to this field, it will seem, I would think, that it would increase the probability of a transfer of diverse international relations professionals into the intellectual institution space, which I think of when I think of the foreign policy theoretical space. I, I've seen it with two colleagues of mine, Naima Green-Wiley. She's currently at Harvard. She's a former diplomat. Now she's an academic writing on the racial preferences towards the use of force or, you know, another good friend of mine, Nola Haynes, for example, out of USC, teaching the next generation of IR professionals at Pepperdine. I would imagine there's a correlation between having a diverse workforce and a broadening foreign policy space. But I don't know if it's ever been tracked, right? I don't know if it's ever been studied. So you're the president-elect of the Black Professionals in International Affairs group. Congratulations. Can you Talk a little bit about what role you see the organization playing going forward. I am so excited for what is to come in 2022. 
I was recently nominated and then now elected as BPI president. We're a 501c3 that's committed to involving more African-Americans and those of African descent in the, in the international affairs field through a variety of programmatic areas. The role that I see BPI playing in the larger foreign affairs space is that of a catalyst, a beacon, if you will, that should draw diverse pools of talent at all levels because the issue of recruitment and retention is not just that of the entry level, right? But through the levels of senior leadership that we're seeing these challenges. So for us, our membership ranges from high school students to retired professionals. And we put an emphasis on mentoring and career guiding in our community. So these are things that I really look forward to building further. We've grown exponentially over the pandemic. And I project that we will continue to see that growth, particularly with engaging directly with organizations who are addressing these efforts. So many of those of whom have established formal relationships with BPIA, State Department, USAID, USIP, USADF, academic institutions, so kind of across the foreign policy space. So we talked a little bit about the need to not just engage the entry level of diversity. What do you think are the biggest challenges for attaining specifically Black talent in foreign policy? And do you find those to be different than the challenges faced by other minority groups? Let's, let's break it down to the micro level. So the foreign policy field made up of institutions, organizations, and most importantly, people. Folks seem to be leaving largely due to two things. And this is based on one, my, my own research, but also just my personal standing in the field where I'm speaking to, you know, chief of DE&I for the ODNI for other, you know, agencies and organizations in our foreign policy field. Either, you know, one, and this seems to be just kind of across the board, regardless of your background, leaving for more pay, going into the private sector, or, you know, something that is a little more connected to what's possible for agencies and organizations in our field to have a little bit more control over is the agency culture is not one in which employees want to stay. So the core of inclusion is feeling a part, right? Or a dedication to the mission. Like if that's missing, it's hard to get folks to stick around. Also, the political climate can be challenging and morally testing as well. You know, sometimes addressing these gaps could easily look like, you know, including and exploring a director, having a director of people and culture across agencies, right? Implementing resources, the activities and infinity groups that are engaging folks to make people feel more engaged. And that may boost kind of morale and make organizations a more enjoyable workplace. And then to answer the second part of your question in reference to the needs of Black professionals and if they are different from other professionals of color in the field, that is a really interesting question. And how I like to think of it is the flavor may be a little different, but the sauce is still the same, Grant. (laughs) Professionals of color 
which is a vast demographic that includes a lot of background. That's like everybody almost often across the board do have to deal with one rooted issue, right? Exclusion. It may take different forms or shapes, but nine times out of 10, that's what it is. Solutions to exclusionary, whether intentional or unintentional environments, can be approached with some pretty simple overarching solutions that can easily be researched, you know, awareness, intentional mechanisms of inclusion, mechanisms of accountability. The difference that I find both being a Black professional in this space and regularly sharing experiences with other Black professionals in this space makes this a very nuanced question. And I'll give you a few real life examples, ranging from our peer group well into retirement. The mentorship that I get, right, from a deck, like an arsenal of former Black ambassadors, other, you know, professional kind of senior official folks who had to fight in this lifetime to integrate our services, to integrate our field. People who are sharing stories of firsthand accounts of racism they have faced by people who are still living and or in leadership in our institutions, having to spend portions of their careers in EEO lawsuits, trying to make things right while loving a country that doesn't always love them back. Just because a leader or a president is promoting division or not seeing DEIA as a priority, that does not mean that they're going to get fired. That does not mean the American people are going to shun this person. Not in 2022. Coming up later this week, the one-year anniversary that Americans with Confederate flags stormed the U.S. Capitol. In that scenario, my identity as an African-American is rooted in the context of that conversation, right? Being overseas as a Black diplomat, getting detained while my white colleagues go straight through customs, being looked at as less than because I'm in the Foreign Service through a fellowship promoting diversity ironically meant to address the lack of diversity in the standard FSO hiring structure, but that's another conversation. If I'm a White House correspondent, April Ryan, and I get kicked out of the White House press conference because the president who didn't like something that I said or my tone, if I'm a senior level official and someone calls me, you know, sister, or can I touch your hair? Or, hey, bro, are you into basketball? Like, When you keep getting passed up over for a job that you know you were qualified for, and there's no explanation as to why someone with less qualifications got that promotion, racial undertones, other forms of covert and overt exclusion. How do you navigate that? Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. So, as African Americans, we often have to learn how to navigate these really unique, sometimes sensitive, sometimes kind of awkward experiences that many of our white coworkers and colleagues may never know. Can some of these acts be experienced by other people of color? Absolutely. However, there is a particular historical context 
to being and navigating in this country, the United States and the world as an African-American. So when I'm asked, are the needs of black professionals different from other professionals of color? The root issue, again, is the same. The sauce is the same, but the flavors may be different. And I get it. It can be an awkward, it can be uncomfortable, slightly overwhelming, like to think about and to confront these things. But imagine if you had to live them. I have. Almost every Black person you've ever encountered has. Oftentimes, quietly, sometimes alone, as the only person in the office. Just imagine the isolation of that. But yet we still truck through, left wondering, would this have happened or would I be the same in the same position in my career if I just happened to be born white? So in order for us to move forward as a field and as a nation and as a country, those who believe in and see the importance in progress, no matter what our background is, race, religion, orientation, can support this forward movement towards a more inclusive, equitable, and aware IR field and society. What is your candid assessment of how the Biden administration is doing on these fronts? You know, what makes this a tough question is that I have seen immense efforts from the Biden administration, who really has worked tirelessly, often unthanked, (laughs) in concentrated efforts to address these challenges in the foreign policy establishment across the U.S. government like never before in history, never before in history have, maybe not to my knowledge, that we've had this much allocation of DE&I specialists working on these specific issues, like historic chief level appointments. We're seeing some reform. We're seeing action. The work that has been done by so many, and I mean this from across the levels of the administration, to me is irrefutable, even though the everyday person may not see it. I commend the folks in the PPO, others who are working tirelessly to follow through with the commitment that was made during Biden's campaign to have an administration more reflective of America. They're showing the follow through on that commitment. When I think about this, and particularly in terms of representation at the top, you know, we got Jake Sullivan, we got Secretary Blinken, Bill Burns. Do I consider these individuals that I just listed adequately qualified for these positions? Absolutely. Without question, no hesitation. Is there any opportunity to explore diverse senior leadership in these roles? Always. We've seen there's an unprecedented effort across our national security leadership, both in the IC, we've got Avril Haines, DOD Secretary Lloyd Austin. To me, these are also solid signs of progress. In a perfect world, these things would be changed with a snap of a finger. So ensuring that diverse candidates are like even making it to the rounds for consideration. So I'd like to acknowledge the work that's being done in this space and in our field that others may not be aware of. But I'm also conscious and acknowledge the importance of accountability that we have to our institutions, kind of in a relationship dynamic of keeping our representatives accountable for the promises, again, for the commitments 
that were made during the Biden campaign and through that season. So what that looks like is measurement, standard measures of accountability, making sure that we have, that the American people and that the public have access to the DNI data. What's the, what's the make, what's the makeup of our institutions, both at the junior level, but particularly where a lot of the challenge that I think is, is at the senior levels still. For the first time in history, we have the first vice president who's a black woman. And I'm curious how having Vice President Harris has changed things, either from a symbolic standpoint or from an actual policy standpoint. Are there sort of direct or indirect connections that that you can draw there? I think from a kind of perspectival, that's the word, stance, that it is empowering to women, all women, to see a woman in that role. And as the vice president, as one of the most, arguably one of the most powerful roles in the world. In terms of what I think her influence has been and her policymaking, there have been tangible policies and things that are coming out of that office. Speaking as a white straight man, what can allies do to actually help rather than just sort of performatively help on these issues? My colleague, who is one of the co-founders of the Forbes The Culture affiliate group, Rashad Lambert, he wrote an excellent article in Forbes last year entitled How Business Leaders Can Step Up as Allies for the Black Community. Really, the article applies to all communities of color, in my opinion. I think he has an excellent outline there. I've also got a listing of resources located on the website of my... So I'm, I'm also... <laughs> founder of an international social justice organization, The World is Watching, BLM. We've got so many resources there to hear about like allyship and what that can look like. But key things, ask questions, even if it's uncomfortable, it's better to ask and maybe look or feel a little silly and learn than to not know it all. But, you know, warm someone up first. You know, are you comfortable if I ask you uh, this question or can I ask you something about X? Or I recommend that. Two, listening to what others are saying. Um, Grant Zoe, you are excellent listeners. <laughs> so you know what it is. Like listening to actually listen, not listening to understand, not to respond. Three, making space for others. Pass the mic when you can. And then lastly, number four, inviting others to the table. Those, those are my four keys for our, for our allies and for my friends. With that, let's turn to the final segment of the show where we talk about an issue, political or cultural, that we've been following in the news this week. I'll kick us off. This week, I want to recommend and then take issue with a television show. That's Station Eleven. It's a post-apocalyptic show on HBO that follows a variety of different characters as they seek to survive and rebuild after a global flu pandemic. It's a little difficult to watch given the fact that we are currently still in a pandemic. That really isn't my quibble. My quibble is the fact that it is based on a book. I like to ruin shows based on books by reading the Wikipedia article before watching. You know, feel free to at me about this on Twitter, but makes me enjoy the art a little bit more. Apparently, Station Eleven, though, is a, quote, aggressive adaptation of the book. So much of the Wikipedia article is actually completely useless at understanding the TV show. So I'm begging you, HBO. Please just write a nice little plot synopsis so I can enjoy 
watching the show. Zoe, what are you following this week? I've been following the end of the Elizabeth Holmes trial. It's been going on for almost four months and just recently ended with the jury finding her guilty of four of 11 counts um, of fraud. I think like a lot of people, uh, I, you know, have consumed a lot of the content and media, you know, around Elizabeth Holmes over the past couple of years. I read Bad Blood. I watched the documentary. I followed the trial. I once even saw Elizabeth Holmes in an airport. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of good and thoughtful writing and analysis done about the symbolism of the trial and the ways in which sexism has sort of been at play, you know, throughout her whole story. But, you know, I think what I'm curious to see is what the ripple effect will be on Silicon Valley culture or whether there won't be one at all. Alexandria, bring us home. What are you following this week? So I've been following, this kind of relates to taxes, I guess, which I don't know how exciting that is. But there's been all this talk on like Elon Musk and his taxes. How, how dare he have to pay $11 billion in taxes as people become $1 trillion richer from last year. So that is what I've been tracking. S&P 500, they gained nearly 20, they gained like 30% last year. Like the Dow gained 20%, NASDAQ 20%. So I've just been tracking out of curiosity as to how this administration and how our institutions will really implement and ensure that those at the top are actually and adequately putting in their percentage. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver. Follow Zoe at Z Weinberg and Alexandria at Globally AJM. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Tim Kaine and his new band, Snowed In on 95. Check out their new hit, Snowbody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, Snowbody Knows My Sorrows. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.